Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, my name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and I'm also co-chair of the JOMA Preventative Health Committee. And I'm really excited to be here today with Jessica Tsur. Hi, Jessica. Hello. Jessica is the founder of CATCH, which stands for Creating a Team of Courage and Hope. It's an organization for women struggling with mental health challenges, specifically anxiety and depression, which I will talk about later. She also runs both a daycare and a gamach, the lovely gamach, for women's and children's clothing. Jessica has been very open about her struggles with severe anxiety and depression and the associated stigma. She realized that there was a huge need for all types of support for women with mental health challenges, which was the impetus for creating CATCH. Jessica's vision for CATCH is, in her words, the go-to spot for women who need support navigating these extremely challenging waters, fighting an illness so often invisible to the outside world. CATCH will be an all-encompassing space for women to get support and direction and not feel alone when dealing with anxiety and depression. You can reach Jessica at info at CATCH support, C-A-T-C-H support, S-U-P-P-O-R-T dot org. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yes, and you're so brave, and I'm so excited that you're out there working against the stigma and talking openly, and I would love to start with your story. Okay. Um, So I actually grew up in New Hampshire. Um, I grew up, my mother always says that I was, ever since I came into this world, I was born with anxiety. I was a very, very anxious child, scared of everything, horses and dark and and being alone. Um, And as I was growing up, I felt my anxiety with physical symptoms. I was always not feeling well. I thought I was having appendicitis or that I had a brain tumor. Everything was physical. And I was really, really feeling those physical sensations. Um, And I used to drive my parents crazy. I have to go to a doctor. I have to go to the emergency room. Something's wrong. I'm dying. And we used to take trips over and over and over to the doctor. And thank God nothing was wrong. Now, we didn't realize then that it was severe anxiety. They knew I was an anxious child, but they didn't realize that all these physical symptoms were causing, you know, were caused by anxiety. Um, But this is really just how I I lived my life. And I did live my life. I was a dancer and I was involved in youth groups. I went to college. I studied abroad in Israel and I managed to get by with these physical symptoms. I was nervous. I had social anxiety, but I managed to, you know, get through life pretty steadily and happily. Um, And then three years ago, there was a triggering situation. Um, I run a daycare and the state came um, unexpectedly. And for whatever reason, this event really started my, I I call it my crash, my mental health crash. Um, And I didn't even realize it until like three months later that this was a traumatic event in my life. Um, I, I completely stopped eating. I was not able to swallow food and I started losing tremendous amounts of weight. I mean, I'm an eater. I love food. I eat cake. I eat ice cream. I eat pizza. I love food and I couldn't eat. Um, and still then I wasn't really aware of what was happening. 
Um, and then I started developing severe panic. And I started having one panic attack after the next. Um, Hatsala was on speed dial. They were always in my, in my house. Um, I literally just had like my favorite guy. I used to call him. I really think I have to go to the hospital. I think I'm dying. And it came a point where I just didn't know what to do. And I just didn't know what to do. I was sitting in the ER and I remember texting a therapist for the first time saying, I need to come in, in for an appointment. Something is severely wrong. Um, so I went in for my first therapy appointment three years ago. But that was really the tip of the iceberg. And unfortunately, the panic started turning into depression because I just, I wasn't functioning. I didn't understand what was happening to me. And I just started to feel very stuck. Um, I was still going to work. I was still running a gamach. I was still being a mother to my, to my children, but something didn't feel right. I was living with a lot of fear, a lot of sadness. Um, and then it just continued to spiral. Unfortunately, um, my depression actually started turning into self-harm. It was a coping skill that I have, if you asked me 10 years ago, if I ever imagined myself doing this, never in my life would I have seen myself doing this, but the emotional pain became so intense that, um, I needed something to just distract myself. So I started engaging in self-harm and I had a lot of suicidal ideation, um, and I think the hardest part was that I was going through it alone. You couldn't see it on the outside. Again, I was greeting parents and children every single day. And except, besides for the fact that I was losing weight, nobody had any idea what was going on. I was smiling. I got dressed. Um, nobody had a clue. And wow. thank God, because I'm active in the community and I have a great support system, I said, if I don't reach out for help soon, I, I might not make it. I was really, really scared so I called organizations. Um, I was looking for funding. I, I, you know, I knew that going to a clinic wasn't really the best choice, but I had Medicaid, so it seemed like it was the only option. I started sharing with my friends um, what I was going through, and thank God I didn't start in, in the, the treatment that really saved me. It was a real um, trial and error. I did start in a clinic. It, it was it was an okay experience, but it wasn't what I needed. From there, I went to a CBT therapist. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't the treatment that I needed at the time. Um, for somebody that's going through, you know, a lot of suicidal ideation and unhealthy coping skills, DBT is really the go-to treatment. I'm sorry, um, can you tell us the difference between CBT and DBT, just so our listeners can know? Sure. So CBT is cognitive behavioral treatment, and it really works on your changing your thoughts, mm -hmm. which will often change your behaviors. Mm -hmm. And DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy, and it's a very, very much a skill-based treatment. You follow a book, um, and it's, it also requires you to be in individual treatment and group therapy weekly. Um, so you're learning skills to get through high intensity moments and that you also have access. An amazing part of this therapy is that you have access to your clinician. You're learning the skills, but if you are out in the real world and you try to skill and it's not working, your clinician is available to you for coaching calls, which is a really, really nice, um, you know, additive to, to treatment. Cause it's not, you don't get that in other, in other, um, modalities. I don't think. Um, but DBT is really the treatment that got me back on my feet after I hit rock bottom. Right. So, yeah, that's, that, that's the majority of the story. I, because I hit rock bottom, though, I did realize that there's something lacking in our community. Um, you're so often this illness, again, because you can't see it, you feel so, so alone.
you're alone. You don't, you don't want to talk about it because you don't want people to know. For me, for my own story, like I, if I spoke about it, what if I would have people pulling their kids out of my daycare? What if people wouldn't come to my gamach? What if my kids' friends wouldn't come over for playdates? I was so scared of what other people would think that I didn't know if I should reach out for help. I tried to figure it out on my own, but it's an illness. That's the most important part we have to realize is that this is an illness. If you don't, if you, God forbid, get diagnosed with cancer and you tell yourself you're going to deal with it on your own, you're going to get sicker. This is the same thing. You need a doctor. You need a clinician. You very often need medication. It is an actual sickness and you can't, you just can't figure it out on your own. You need the help. Absolutely. Right. And, and I have to say, as a pediatrician, this is something I'm really, really passionate about. One thing that struck me about your story is it's very common for both adults and children to come into the doctor with physical symptoms. Right. And those physical symptoms can be actually have underlying anxiety. And by the way, it interacts. So you can have someone who has a physical problem and they're anxious about it. That's right. And then right? it makes those physical symptoms 10 times worse. Exactly. So what I try to right. do, well, the way I try to deal with it is I say, it's not either or, it can be both. Right. Because the right. flip side, if you think about the woman's uterus, right? The mm -hmm. root of that is hysteria, history, right? Hysterectomy, right. Right. right? That women were thought to be like hysterical, like their, their bodies, their physical problems were discounted. So we can't ever say, quote unquote, it's all in your head, but right. we also can't say it's all in your head. It's not real. Right. It Correct. has to be, we look at the person and deal with what they need. And I also say, if you have a sore throat, I'm going to check you for strep. If you're having anxiety, I'm going to check you for that too. Right. It's just you know, as I'll real. It's real. I'll never forget. I was in fifth grade and we took a family trip to Disney World. I was in so much the, the week before such severe stomach pain. Mm -hmm. I could not walk. And they thought I had appendicitis. I literally had to be pushed in a stroller in Disney World in oh. fifth grade. And that was all rooted from anxiety. But the pain was real. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and it's debilitating. It really can be debilitating until you learn skills to get yourself through it. And that's the amazing thing is that there are ways to manage your anxiety. You learn about it through treatment. There are real skills that can help you deal with the physical symptoms and the thoughts. Right. And it's sad that, you know, you went 30 years plus before you got a diagnosis, but you yeah. had it your whole life. Yeah, my whole life. So I was actually diagnosed. I finally went to a psychiatrist. I was living in Manhattan and thank God for good friends. I was, I, I was 24 at the time. That was the first time I started medication. And at that point, my biggest physical symptom was dizziness. I remember getting through college and having to hold on to the sides of my chair. I felt like I was on a boat constantly. I couldn't walk straight. I was always either lightheaded or spinning. And I went to a therapist. There was nothing really particular. I mean, now I realize that there was. It was September 11th and my grandmother had passed away. But at that time, I didn't know that these were traumatic events in my life. Um, but the medication took away those physical symptoms. And once those symptoms went away, I was able to function much better than I was without the medication. And I'm not a person like to take, to convince me to take medication is, is, is a big challenge. Wait, when you say medication, what medication? You mean like an anxiety medication? Yeah. I started on Celexa, but it, it literally changed my life. So wait, so that was when you were younger. So you did actually have this addressed when you yes. were younger, but not yes. in really a therapeutic way, Correct. more of a symptomatic way. Right. I went to therapy for like a month mm -hmm. um, until she convinced me to go to a psychiatrist. And once I saw that the medication was working, I was like, great, that was it. And I was on medication since I was 25 until I was 37. 
and I had never gone to therapy in between them. Right. And that's also a problem is that I think a lot of times people want a magic pill. Right. right. But these are complex, you know, multifactorial problems. And I want to just take at least a few minutes. I'm going to try. Oh, hi. I'm going to try. I'm going to try not to to be too boring. Um, but I think as a physician, it's important to just spend a little time defining anxiety and depression. So sure. now I'm going to start talking a lot because there's a lot to say. I'm going to try not to be too boring. <laughs> and we can sort of think of your story. Our listeners can think of your story and think of some things that you've said that fit into the, these patterns. Right. So there are many types of anxiety, but I'm going to talk about generalized anxiety disorder. There are other types like social anxiety. Um, but I'm going to focus on generalized anxiety disorder. And what it is, is worrying that's more persistent and to a greater degree, and that's harder to control because everybody worries. Absolutely. We all right? <laughs> But this is something that is to a greater degree. And, and in general, when we're talking about um, problems. We're talking about three, four basic concepts. Frequency, right? How often it occurs. Intensity, how intense it is, how how um, how much, how, 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 what's the word that I want? What's the word for intense? Intense. How intense it is and how long it lasts and also how it impairs your function. So that's, you know, some people may say, oh, I, I worry too. What, what's the difference? You know, you worry, I worry. It's the same thing. No, it isn't right. because mental illness is all these factors and that's what makes a difference. So we're talking about the, the worry being, you know, more frequent, more intense, lasting longer, harder to control, impairing your function more. And it can have physical symptoms like you described, and it causes distress. And again, it causes impairment of daily functioning. And it's super, super common. I don't have exact numbers for anxiety here, but I can tell you as a pediatrician, especially in, in young girls, it is so, so common. And of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic and that cannot have made it less common. It has to be more common. And I would presume you know, even more so in adults with everything that's going on. So the other thing to keep in mind about anxiety is that it is often what's called comorbid, meaning coexisting with depression. And you can have one, you can have the other, or you can have both together. And stress, of course, can trigger it. It can exacerbate it. So you're an example of someone who had it all along, and then you had something that was very stressful for you, and it really brought out a whole bunch of more symptoms. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of that. Um, I mentioned before that you can have physical symptoms and not that that um, you as a person or, you know, if you're as a parent should not be afraid to say, hey, don't just think mental health. Don't just think physical. Look at my whole child. And for doctors to please listen, because I have to tell you, as a doctor, we have so little time and it can be hard to deal with a person that comes in and they seem to be all over the place. Well, my head hurts and this hurts and that hurts. Right. It can right. be hard to give the time to say, you know, I'm going to do everything you need. I'm going to look for physical things, but I'm not going to just, you know, do a few tests and send you out. Right. Cause that would be the quick thing to do. Um, and not to be afraid to, to ask by the way, for, for a referral for this. So that's just really, really brief on, on anxiety. Um, it's often existing with other things. Um, other stresses, substance abuse, other kinds of abuse can, can occur with it or can make it worse. 
Okay, um, let's see. I'm not going to be able to go through all of this, but I want to do a little bit on depression. And just bear with me because I've got all these pages here and I'm trying not to read. There's like 30 pages here. That's the summary. It's just, it's really, really complicated. And I think I'm going to get a psychiatrist to go into this in greater detail because I'm a general pediatrician. Um, let's see. This is how it would show. So you would see somebody who's worrying. Of course, you may not see it. Um, the person may be more active than usual. They may not be able to sleep. They may be excessively tired. And again, they may have symptoms. The typical symptoms, by the way, are stomach ache and headache. Those are the most common. They may also feel dizzy and they may also be excessively tired. Okay. And it's a good idea to, to have the medical piece looked at, but not to have the, the emotional symptoms dismissed. And they're no less real. Okay. And depression, which I brought with me. Aha. Okay, so depression is actually the most common psychiatric disorder. It says here about 20% of the population has a significant bout of depression at some point. And again, it can coexist with anxiety and commonly it does. And you're an example of, you know, you had anxiety your whole life and then you ended up with depression symptoms as well. And I feel like everybody in this pandemic must have some degree at this point, right? Of either one or both. Right, yeah, right. even if they didn't. Right. And can you imagine though, if you've already had it, right. where you're going, Yeah, where you're going from there. And, right. and it is so important to get help. And why would people not get help? And yeah. you talked about a little bit of the reasons why people wouldn't get help, right? What will people think, right? right. And because it's invisible, you can fake it. That's right. How I mean, many of us, that's, you know, the big thing is how you can get dressed. Today, you can look picture perfect, especially right. on social media. Right. If you don't talk about it, no one will know. It's right. so easy to hide. Right. But it's so sad to do that because well, you're, you're cheating yourself. You're cheating yourself out of, out of proper treatment. You know, you, you want to get out of it. The only way to get out of it is to acknowledge yourself that you're struggling and kind of put everybody else's judgment on the side and tell yourself that you want to get to a healthier place. You have to be okay with it first. Right. And I think also a big thing, and this is what, one reason why you're so brave. I heard you talk and you say, well, I was warned, you know, it's going to be a problem with my children. Right. And I'm doing it anyway, because it's the right thing to do. But it's so common. It's so, it's common. so common. Listen, we also have to understand there's, there's definitely a genetic piece, you know, in anxiety and depression, very often it runs in the family mm -hmm. and there's an environmental piece. Right. Um, and you have to remind yourself that it's not really in your control. This is, it's not your fault. And it's just, it's something that you have to deal with, just like you have to deal with any other condition. And it is very common. Right. Now, but another, right. Another part of your story that shows is that if you don't get help when you're younger, right. it's going to bite you later. Right. It's going to make it so much harder when you face greater stresses. Right. So now so, I think years ago, I mean, we didn't know it wasn't talked about like right. now all over social media. So if you're right. seeing signs in your children, get them help now. They'll gain the skills to get through life. I don't think that it ever disappears. I think that if you, right. if you generally have anxiety and depression, it may be something that you'll deal with you know, throughout your life, but you'll gain the skills to get through with it. It won't define you. It won't take your, over your life. You'll be able to live and know how to kind of keep it at bay under control. Right. And I think another reason people don't get help because they think I'll have to go on medication. Right. 
I have a lot of people, a lot of parents who don't want their child, they don't want them labeled and or they don't want them on medication. And right. that's not true that you will necessarily need medication. Although if you do, just like you take, again, it's an analogy I give. You take medication for strep. You wear glasses to see. That's you get right. medication so your brain can function. That's right. That's, That's right. it. We really need to destigmatize it so that we can treat it like any right. other medical condition because it is. I got off my medication when I was pregnant with my first child because they didn't really know what medications were safe and what. And I had the dizziness had gone away and it came back full force. And it just showed me that there really is a chemical imbalance right. in my body that's you know, adding to this anxiety and depression. And when my body is balanced by the medication, I feel better. Right. So the, for me, the medicine works. It's not an answer for everybody, but sometimes it is part of the bigger picture. Right. And by the way, that's a whole other topic of medication while pregnant slash nursing. Right. Um, that's something, again, we're not here to provide any medical advice. We have a disclaimer that you didn't hear at the beginning of this, but I'm going to just say that at this point in time, we're not here for that. But um, don't assume that you can't have medication and be pregnant or nurse. There right. are medications that are more compatible, less compatible. I've definitely seen the scenario where a parent is nursing and they don't, you know, they're not taking their medication and right. they really needed it. <laughs> A hundred percent. My four after I was on medication. <laughs> right, right. And, and sometimes nursing doesn't work out because the medication may not be compatible and having a mother who is functioning. Right, is much greater priority. Right. correct. Yes. Right. And by the way, for people who are listening, you can look back at previous podcasts. We have separate postpartum anxiety, separate postpartum depression. We have a bunch of talks because this topic is so important and we're going to keep talking about it and we're never going to stop. <laughs> Um, I did not go into depression because I got distracted. Sorry. Um, I want to do a little bit of depression because it's boring if I just keep droning on. I, I, I admit that. Um, so depression is not just being sad. I think also people like, I, I was depressed, you know, my cat died. <laughs> right. I'm not to make fun of people who lose their pet. I mean, I'm just saying that. There's people a big difference. Can, right, right. People also don't understand there's what used to be called situational depression where something triggers you to be sad for a short period of time. That is not the same thing with chronic depression. And again, right. there are so many subtypes that I don't want to get, you know, um, drown in the details here. But again, it's super, super common. We have about 20%, you know, in the course of people's lifetime, it may even be more. And now I think it's more. Um, it says here, two thirds of people who have depression actually are coming in complaining of physical symptoms. Wow. And again, it's not something that people come in to see me and say, hey, I'm depressed. Hey, I'm anxious. Every once in a while, someone will straight out say it. Um, we have screens in our practice, pediatric practice, and I find them to be limited. People don't always admit to it. And also the amount that you need to qualify for failing the screen is so high that you really have, the, the physician really has to be in tune with this mm -hmm. to try to pick it up and to try to ask directly and to try to be open and it can be an ongoing dialogue, but also to pick up that multiple somatic, multiple physical symptoms may be the only red flag you get. Right. right. And to be open. So I hope that doctors listen to this too. I hope so too. <laughs> we need that awareness also. I'm so sorry yeah. that we have so little sure. time as doctors. Doctors out there, I'm sorry. I know this is hard. <laughs> but hopefully greater awareness will help us pick it up just that we can be there for our patients and right. you know, have a referral database. It doesn't necessarily take so long. Um, so what else did I want to say about that? We mentioned, um, all the reasons why people may not want to say something about it, but it's so important to do that. Um, 
I just want to say one more thing. This is just superficial. This is just, just so we have at least some basic definitions here. One other chart that I found that was helpful was how depression and anxiety symptoms can overlap. So I have a column where symptoms specific to depression are being depressed, sad, or hopeless, losing interest in activities, changing in weight, right? Like you talked about not eating as much, poor appetite, same thing, um, not moving around as much, right? Staying in bed all day, feeling not worthy or feeling guilt, and even thoughts of suicide or death, which of course are super dangerous and um, really the physicians, the parents, other people in the family have to look out for this as mm -hmm. much as possible. Be aware that that is a real risk. Right. Um, and then symptoms specific to anxiety or excessive worry, moving around a lot, not being able to sit still, um, also startling easily, and then feeling like really tense. What can be similar to both, overlap with both, is being irritable. And by the way, it's important to emphasize as a pediatrician that children often exhibit depression not by being sad, as you would think, but by being um, irritable and angry. And that's important for parents to know that they may not see what they see as depression, but see more irritability. Um, also, moving around a lot, being agitated, not being able to concentrate, that's also a really, really big one that I see as a pediatrician with young adults will come in and say, I think I have ADHD. I can't concentrate. And then when I really pull it out, when I'm busy with all the somatic complaints and all the physical things also, and I find one more minute, I try talking about the possibility of anxiety and or depression, and that's where I find the answer. So ADHD can coexist with anxiety and depression. It's very commonly comorbid, coexisting with it, but it also can be a mimic. They can mimic each other. So it's important, again, to not have somebody just give you a medication without really taking a good history and right. you can advocate for that as yourself or as a parent. It's really important to be your child's best advocate or your own best advocate um, and fatigue and not being able to sleep. So I'm going to stop talking about the medical stuff and say, we're really going to need to get a psychiatrist or a therapist or somebody to spend more time in this because it's so broad. And um, like I said, I'm just going to keep doing talks on this. <laughs> it's so important. But let's so talk, important. let's talk about, um, Let's talk a little bit about stigma, and then I want to talk about your organization. So you mentioned something about inner stigma versus outer stigma, and I never thought about it like that, so I'd love to hear what that means. So when I started the organization, um, before it was called CATCH, it was originally called SOS, which stands for Stomp on Stigma. Mm -hmm. And in my head, our job was to knock down the stigma that the world has for, you know, mental health, that we had to, we just had to knock it down, knock down the stigma. I mean, you hear it all over the place now. We have to get rid of the stigma. And the stigma definitely plays a, an enormous part on, on us getting, you know, treatment for ourselves. We're always concerned. Well, what will other people think? I mean, you mentioned it just a few minutes ago. You know, if somebody knows that I struggle with anxiety or depression, will they think of me differently? Um, but I think just as important, even more important, is the stigma that we have within ourselves. And it took me a very long time to understand that. I actually have um, the diagnosis of borderline, which I'm not going to go into the medical terms, but I couldn't, I couldn't accept the fact that this is one of the reasons why I was struggling. And I, all I kept seeing was like the word flashing off, borderline, borderline you have this, you're not going to function. And there was so much stigma that I had within myself that it was preventing me from getting help. I wasn't, there, in DBT, there's a term called radical acceptance. Accepting your reality full, you know, wholeheartedly 
you can't change your reality, but you can change your reaction to your reality. And it is hard when you, when you get that diagnosis of anxiety or depression or borderline or bipolar, it definitely does something to the stigma within yourself, but it's constant reminding yourself that this is not my fault. I didn't cause this to myself. It is something that I have to face. And reaching out for that help is not a sign of weakness. It is an enormous sign of strength. 100%. Because if you're not getting yourself help, you're not capable of being a friend, a mother, a spouse. You're, you're stuck. You, you, if, you, if, you, if that stigma controls you, you are literally stuck inside a box and you can't move any further. So first we have to knock down the stigma that we have within ourselves, and then we can worry about dealing with the rest of the world. But healing really comes from knocking down the stigma within yourself first, I, I feel. That, that's so true, and you said something that I think that we all should be able to, I want you to say it one more time, you said something about radical acceptance means, because that's not just for people who are in DBT, we all right. need this right now. It relates to, I mean, look at the, the world around us. How many of us are stuck in COVID is here. I just want it to end. I can't take this. You're beating yourself up. Guess right. what? Unfortunately, the reality is, and radical acceptance is accepting your reality fully. Mm-hmm. COVID is here. Now we can whine and cry and complain and get more depressed and more anxious, or we can say, I the fact that unfortunately... The coronavirus is all around us. And what can I do to get myself in a healthier place? We have to accept the reality and ask ourselves how we can function in a more functional way. You know, with anything, even if you're, I mean, any situation that you're dealt with, you have to look like separate the facts, you know, what's fact and what's not, what's reality and what's not. Right. And the way I want things to be in the way they are. Right. Exactly. Right. That's a lot of work. For yes, all of so us that right was, now. That was one of those. You should be able those, to appreciate this. Yes. Yeah. You should be able to relate. It's not so, easy. It's that, you know, no. these skills, you have to work at it. It's, it's constant work all the time. Um, I can talk about all the skills that I've learned and how they've helped me just get through life, but it's work. It's not, it's not a magic answer and it's definitely work. Right. Right. And also to feel that you're worthy, right? Because if you're right. struggling with guilt and feeling of unworthiness, that's coming from within yourself. Correct. Right. I, I don't deserve help. I don't, right? Right. And, and, and yeah, one of the things, stigma. exactly. So I think we're not going to focus on external stigma. I think there's so many organizations that, that do that. Right. I think that just by talking about it, we're helping reduce it. And you also have right now, right now what's up and running is support groups. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about these support groups and I feel like I'm like beaming with I don't even know what the word is. We actually have them with not, not even Nachas. It's the connection that's happening in these groups. There are no words to describe happens to be that tonight's group was the most incredible group out of, we've been meeting for five months. We have two groups going in West Hempstead. Um, One is closed. Yeah. One is closed. It's at nine women. We really want to cap it no more than 10 because it's really the intimate group is really when the, the connection and the healing takes place. We have another one that one is at seven 15, one's at eight 15. That's still open to new, um, you know, people that are still interested. And we have one going in Borough Park right now. Um, amazing. It, it, it really, oh, amazing. It, it's amazing. Um, we were, I was talking with the women, you know, at the, the first group, we are all so different, um, religiously and just 
you know, personality wise and age wise, we're so, so different. And yet the connection that happens once that door is closed, um, we're sharing things that don't get shared anywhere else. You know, tonight we actually spoke about intimacy for the first time, which is a topic, it's a taboo topic. And everybody shared and the validation that's happening within these groups is you can just take off your mask. Obviously we're all wearing uh, real masks, but we're taking off the masks that we're hiding behind in the outside world and sharing what's, you know, things that are going on in our marital lives or how, you know, with, with anxiety and depression and intimacy. And some of us have suicidal thoughts and we're connecting to each other and validating each other. It's, these support groups are, are, are really incredible. And I have to say, though, that these are in-person support groups. Just sure. said, you you were very insistent that even during the pandemic, and of course, I'm sure you're socially distanced and yes. all that kind of stuff, yeah. being very safe about it. Yeah. I can't, I, I can't imagine how valuable that is because I think one of the problems of the pandemic is the isolation. It is. It's huge. The isolation. It's huge. Right. And we are, we're being very careful. You know, everybody's wearing masks. We're sitting six feet. They're, they're in right. person and they're clinician facilitated. There's right. always a clinician, a licensed clinician running these groups. Um, they're run by the peers. So usually the peers are the ones talking, but because we're dealing with mental health and sensitive issues do come up, there is always a licensed clinician there. Right. And this is not in lieu of therapy. Absolutely not. Um, this is just another added way to gain extra support. It's very important that when you're going through a mental health crisis or challenge um, that you have your own therapist. This does not take the, the place of individual therapy at all. Right. And, and I would presume that a woman does not have to have a proven diagnosis to come to this. This could be Absolutely even before not. she seeks help, but it should Correct. be in place of seeking help. And it might right. be that someone comes and says, you know, I don't know. I don't know where to go. I'm not right. sure. And then she can come to this and see. That's right. That's right. right. There's a lot of self-discovery that's happening at these, in these groups and people are, I mean, we're not really giving each other advice, but some, you know, what a clinician, clinician works for somebody. So then somebody else will try or a psychiatrist is working for somebody else. There's a lot of conversation happening. Um, and you know, you can come whether or not, listen, if you're, if you're going through things such as severe depression or you're having, you know, engaging in self-harming behaviors and suicidal thoughts, you definitely need to have your own individual clinician. But there are people that are just very anxious and are okay without a clinician. And they are also more than welcome to come to, to these groups. Because there's a whole spectrum. There's a very large spectrum. Right. And like right. you do not have to meet DSM-5 criteria for in any particular mental health disorder to right. come. Right. But, it's, but it is geared for women with anxiety and depression. Yes. And well, we have an, an intern that will be doing intakes for any women that are interested in joining the group. So she'll be able to screen, you know, if there's not everybody also, you know, if they're really, really struggling and they're not at a functional level, it may mm -hmm. be that these groups are not appropriate for them right. at this time until they, you know, get more stability. Now, do you provide referrals? So say if someone comes in and they are more severely impacted and they're not appropriate. So we do, I mean, we, we will rec we refer people to organizations like Relief. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, they call Relief, depending on what insurance they have, they will then be able to guide them towards a clinician that takes their insurance. Um, we're actually hearing more about now an organization that if you, if you have an insurance and you have a clinician that doesn't take that insurance, these people will fight against the insurance company to pay for the services. Yes, we're not, I, I don't even have, we actually had a meeting about it today. What? It's a phenomenal service that if we can add it to our organization, it will be 
like it will be truly life saving. Do they have a name? So secret? They, the, I actually <laughs> met with, they didn't even give me the name yet because they're working with, the person is located in California. Oh, wow. Um, but this is what she does. And I said, please, she only works with a few insurance companies now, but she's building. Can you imagine? Therapy is so expensive. Right. And it's for me, changer. if I didn't get DBT, I, I can honestly say I don't know where I would be today. Um, and somebody in my community raised funds for me to get the treatment, but not everybody's that lucky. Right, but I still see that as something that this could come out of your organization or somebody else's organization sure. where they raise sure. money. There should be no barrier. If there's no barrier for getting treatments for that's cancer, there should be right. no barriers for treatment for mental illness, no matter how severe it is. Right. And that's why we really want to be, you know, when people ask me what CATCH is, my, the best way to describe it is that we want to kind of be a high lifeline mm -hmm. for mental health because sometimes when you're going through severe anxiety or depression, you don't have it in you to start calling this organization and that organization and there are multiple things that a person could need help with at the time whether it's getting you know community support or funding for therapy or possibly they need even more intensive treatment or hospitals so we want to be that one stop you pick up the phone and we can now direct you to all of these places and you don't have to make a million phone calls and get exhausted by the experience of reaching out for help right but this is going to take time i think people need to be aware that you are just starting are just starting we are right? just starting i yeah. don't think you have a facebook i mean or a, or a um, website yet we do not we are working on getting that um that up and running we do right now we have started with again the, the support groups they are right now running in west Hempstead and borough park we can, we are looking to get one going in flatbush um, we can refer there are you know ref, we can refer people to like i said relief um locally in the in the five towns you can call beaker hole and they do help with funding so there are organizations that if we can't help directly with now with our organization we can direct you to other people that can that's amazing that is really amazing and you've come so far um people want to reach you i want you to repeat one more time that email address sure it's info at catch support c-a-t-c-h support s-u-p-p-o-r-t dot org um, and if they want to connect on the phone they can mm -hmm. shoot me an email and i am more than happy to um you know be that listening ear for people that that need it through the phone as well is there a phone number that you want to give on this yeah or? sure you want me to say it? Some, um, some people I'll say it. Might get this without an email. <laughs> yeah, 347-433-4742. And you can either, you know, give me a call or really the best way is just to shoot me a text and then we'll connect and find a time that works best to talk. That is amazing. And again, I don't think people who have this can can say, you know, it is so amazing. It is so valuable. I can't even put it into words right now. I'm so emotional about this right now. <laughs> to be not alone. Right. To be not yeah. alone. Because as a parent of a child with special needs, I actually had founded a support group and I'll never forget what that room was like. There had never been anything like this. And there we were together to not be alone. Right. I think there's two levels of not being alone. One, you have already taken care of because you have women supporting women. The right. next level will be for the community to bring them in. That's right. Right. I think sometimes the worst part of these struggles, just like what you said, is that feeling of loneliness. Mm. It has the ability to destroy you even more than the anxiety and the depression. Right. And, and you're not alone. There are so many people that are experiencing the same things that you are. And that's what these support groups are doing. It's creating, once you're in that room, you are not alone anymore. You're not. And that camaraderie right there. It gives these, these women are saying it gets them through the week. They know that in this many more days, they'll have that feeling again. 
and it's like it, it's literally like a like a fire spark that keeps them going right and you also show how, what, how much one person can accomplish which is amazing right. But you do need help, and I do want to give you a chance to say what your challenge is. What's your challenge here? You tell well, me. Our biggest challenge right now, we were very, very fortunate to get some startup funding from local organizations, um, including, I just want to give them some, you know, a shout out and, and credit. Um, JCCRP and Beaker Holem and Mask has given mm -hmm. us some startup money. Unfortunately, that, do, that money doesn't last forever, and we are moving forward with the groups and, and forming more groups. So we do need funds to pay the clinicians that are running these groups. Um, I am not a fundraiser. It's not in my personality, and I know it's very much needed. So if you're listening and you do feel an attachment to this organization, um, we're not our own 501c3, but we are under the Davis Memorial Fund, so tax receipts can be given for all donations. And hopefully you will become a 501. That is one of our goals as well, right. yeah. <laughs> this is so, so amazing. And we could talk about this all night oh, if I don't put an end to it at some point. <laughs> thank but you I for just the want, opportunity. Oh my gosh, I have been waiting to do this. This is one of my, my list of talks that my daughter tells me you must do this talk. <laughs> and I can tell her I did it. We did it. We did it. We have to continue to spread, you know, spread the awareness and, and, and tell people that there is help out there. Absolutely. So again, we have your organization, which is also on Instagram. Yes. Right. The handle is catch support. Catch support. Correct. Right. And I just want to mention just one other organization because I forgot to say this, that I was thinking that not everybody does want to meet in person. Right. I think it's so valuable and I'm so grateful that you have this even in the middle of a pandemic. But for those who don't, there's another organization that's called Chazkainu. C-H-A-Z-K-E-I-N-U.org. It's a Havalist organization. Um, she, like you, started it. She has her own mental health challenges and came out and talking about it, being open. And she has um, uh, phone support groups. She and has a, they they like a warm line. They, I think, have group. But it's all not in person. Right. And that makes it, if you feel like more comfortable doing it, like it's a little bit more anonymous. But in your groups, even though they're in person, they are completely confidential. Completely confidential. Yes, that is exactly how we start these groups. Everything that happens in that group stays in that group. You're not allowed right. to, not unless you don't acknowledge anything outside of those, those doors. Right. So between the two of you, amazing, amazing women, so brave and amazing, we have two organizations with two different forms of support. So this is, we've come so far and we need to go so much further. I just want to mention one more organization that you alluded to, just so people can reach out to it if they need to, Relief. Reliefhelp.org, R-E-L-I-E-F, help.org is a place where you can get mental health referrals anonymously. So I want to talk to you more, but I'm going to say thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank and you. Hopefully we'll, we'll have more conversations and T-School and Mitzvahs and Hatzlacha Rabban, everything you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. Be well. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Jomo Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.